Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. I also happen to think George W. Bush is a war criminal. Can you find a single major newspaper willing to editorialize that George W. Bush, having based on lies, ordered the invasion of Iraq, costing hundreds of thousands of lives? Can you find any instance where a major U.S. media outlet refers to George W. Bush as a war criminal? It just ain't going to happen. That's Norman Solomon, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Norman Solomon, War Crimes and War Criminals. At the end of World War II, the victorious Allies decided to try leading officials of the Nazi regime as war criminals. A tribunal was convened in Nuremberg. Some of the top Nazis were hanged. Others were given jail sentences. Today, Nuremberg is largely forgotten. The clear evidence of that was the March 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, an unambiguous war crime committed by war criminals, not just George W. Bush, but Cheney, Wolfowitz, Rice, et al. Those responsible for the Iraq war have never answered for the chaos and massive bloodshed and dislocation that followed not just in Iraq, but in neighboring Syria as well. The rise of ISIS, the massacre of Yezidis, and sectarian violence can be directly traced to what Bush and his cohorts did. Will he and the others involved be held to account? Hardly. The former president has taken up painting in his retirement. Our guest today is Norman Solomon, a distinguished political commentator and media critic. He's the executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy and co-founder of RootsAction.org, an online activist group. He's the author of many books. His latest is War Made Invisible. He was at his home in Northern California when I talked with him. Welcome to the program. Thank you. The U.S. Justice uh, Robert Jackson, he was the chief prosecutor uh, at Nuremberg, uh, he made an opening statement to the tribunal on November 21, 1945, because there was some concern at the time that the tribunal was an example of victor's justice. And he said this, If certain acts of violation of treaties are crimes, they are crimes whether the United States does them or whether Germany does them. And we are not prepared to lay down the rule of criminal conduct against others, which we would not be willing to have invoked against us. These are Jackson's words. He continues, We must never forget that the record on which we judge these defendants is the record on which history will judge us tomorrow. To pass these defendants a poison chalice is to put it to our own lips as well. Here we are so long after the Nuremberg trials and the supreme crime of aggression to launch war is not only widespread, but is sanitized and even glorified. We've had this experience in one decade after another where the United States has attacked a country in violation of international law, committed, according to the Nuremberg Tribunal, 
the supreme international crime. And yet, not only is there a lack of remorse, but there has con continued to be glorification. It goes to the point that unless we have a single standard of human rights, a single standard of international conduct and war, then it becomes an Orwellian exercise at which leaders of governments are always quite adept, but that doesn't make it anything other than intellectually, morally, and spiritually corrupt. At the beginning of my book, War Made Invisible, the very first quote is from Aldous Huxley, who said 10 years before the Nuremberg trials, quote, the propagandist purpose is to make one set of people forget that certain other sets of people are human, unquote. And here we are in 2023, and this is still the challenge to analyze, illuminate, and push back against that purpose of propagandists around the world, and especially in our own country, where ostensibly in a ostensible democracy, we have the most capacity to change policy. You cite the late independent journalist Reese Ehrlich, who said, the U.S. is supposed to have the best and freest media in the world. But in my experience, this is Ehrlich speaking, having reported from dozens of countries, the higher up you go in the journalistic feeding chain, the less free the reporting. That resonates an experience of so many journalists who really are faced with only a few options. One is to go along to get along and stay within the parameters of what is understood to be professionalism, which is very conformist on the whole, or to rock the boat and usually be tossed overboard. We have many examples of that, uh, or to quit. And as Reeserlich points out, the more that a media outlet has reach and influence and power, the less likely it and its employees are inclined to really challenge the power structure. And there is no power structure more powerful in the United States in 2023 than what Eisenhower long ago called the military-industrial complex. Today, we might call it the military-industrial-surveillance-media complex. And the results are that although there are conflicts at times, between the Pentagon and the corporate media, there's much more confluence and the clashes are more like dust-ups that are incidental, whereas, as Reese Ehrlich is really alluding to, the fundamental questions are left uncontested because of the unity. And there is no unity more pervasive and more influential and impactful than the assumption, and assumptions are the most powerful forms of propaganda, the assumption that the United States government and its military have the prerogative and should have the prerogative to work their will on the world, including when they adjudge this to be appropriate with military intervention. Talk more about uh, establishment uh, media. Take a for example, a recent interview of David Ignatius of the Washington Post talking to uh, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State. What's striking is the deference here. 
very, very uh, polite questions. The lack of critical inquiry is obvious. And the questions are inside a narrow range of permissible thought. Again, as you quote Orwell, circus dogs jump when the trainer cracks the whip, but the really well-trained dog is the one that turns somersaults when there is no whip. There are very well understood no-go zones where you just don't venture past the unwritten but understood dotted lines that you're not supposed to cross. One of them in that instance would be, hey, Secretary of State Lincoln, you are serving a president who was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And in the summer of 2002, he wielded the gavel and conducted a hearing which was basically a green light for the invasion of Iraq, which occurred uh, the following March in 2003. How can you now and how can the president now proclaim and criticize Russia for the invasion of Ukraine because we're told that it is impermissible, should never be allowed for one country to invade another when going back to early in this century, you and your boss helped the United States to invade Iraq. So this gets to the question of not only double standards, but even more profound questions of are we being banished into and kept within a kind of Orwellian world, including a mentality that says, oh, it's not permissible to even raise these questions. This is a archetype for what Orwell in 1984 called doublethink, that certain facts are left on the shelf and only taken off the shelf and put into view when they're convenient. So in this case, you have the current Secretary of State who was Chief of Staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when they held those bogus hearings in the summer of 2002 to wave through the upcoming invasion of Iraq. And here, now we've got the same Secretary of State going around lecturing Russia about invading uh, Ukraine. So I think the appropriate position is to say, look, we've got to have a single standard of international conduct. We don't get to keep moving the goalposts around at our convenience. And rather than say, oh, therefore it's okay to invade countries, the appropriate stance to take and demand is that whether it's Russia, whether it's the United States, whether it's any other nation, they don't get to go around and violate what the Nuremberg tribunals called the supreme international crime, which is to prepare and then implement international uh, aggression by crossing borders and attacking other countries. Right now, we're in a situation where, unfortunately, across a lot of the political spectrum, including some of the left, there are folks who think you have to choose between alignment with U.S. foreign policy and policies of aggression or Russian foreign policy and policies of aggression. And I think it's appropriate and necessary to say we should condemn Russia's war on Ukraine and the hypocrisy out of Washington does not in any way let Russia off the hook. By the same token, the aggression by Russia does not in any way, it should not let the United States off the hook. And it's tremendous 
carnage that it has created in this century. I mean, if you add up the numbers, the country by far that is responsible for slaughtering more people in more countries through wars of aggression, that country is the United States of America. What's your assessment of uh, PBS and NPR? Do they present any dissident voices that challenge the hegemonic assumptions you refer to? The style is different. It's a long form of the same propaganda framework. And so you can listen to a 10-minute segment on All Things Considered or a panel discussion on the PBS NewsHour, and the style and the civility may be refreshing to the ear. It also normalizes a more long-form manifestation of the same attitudes, the same status quo assumptions about foreign policy. We won't say never, but it is extremely rare for a questioner who is a journalist for NPR or PBS to assertively question the underlying prerogatives of the U.S. government to attack other countries. Uh, Like elsewhere in the news media, but uh, with more erudite ambience, you've got NPR, PBS, unwilling to challenge, but very willing to propagate and perpetuate those assumptions that, yes, the United States might make mistakes. The U.S. has committed blunders, which is a popular phrase for the U.S. invasion of Iraq, resulting in hundreds of thousands of deaths. But the underlying message is that, yes, we can and should argue at times over when whether and how to attack certain countries with the firepower of the Pentagon. But those decisions need to be made, and the U.S. has the right to do so if that is the best judgment that can be summoned from the wise people in the upper reaches of policy in Washington. Jeff Cohen, the founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, has talked about uh, the guest lists on uh, these programs on PBS and NPR. There's a golden Rolodex of what he calls formers, former undersecretaries of state, former lieutenant colonels, retired generals, uh, etc. What about dissident voices that get on? People like Medea Benjamin, like yourself, like Noam Chomsky. FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy Reporting, has done a number of studies over the years from commercial networks to NPR to the PBS NewsHour, and found that particularly when issues of war and peace are on the table, having opponents of U.S. military action on the air is extremely rare, uh, sometimes below 1%. And this is what is considered to be objective journalism. And it goes hand in hand with a precept, usually unspoken, but certainly in play and in force in the real world, that if a U.S. journalist is in favor of U.S. wars, then that's objectivity. But if a U.S. journalist is opposed to U.S. wars, that's biased. And there are many instances where journalists who step outside of the dotted lines, the well-understood but 
unwritten rules of corporate U.S. media, and I certainly would include NPR and PBS under that generic category, those journalists have hit a wall with their careers, with their programs, with the trajectory of their work as journalistic professionals. Uh, One example is Ashley Banfield. Here's a journalist who, as you would say in the record business, She had a bullet next to her name. She was rising in the charts. She, as a young reporter and anchor at MSNBC and then NBC itself. At the time of 9-11, she reported as the tower was falling in Manhattan. She went on to cover U.S. interventions uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And she was being touted by the New York Times and other outlets as quite possibly the successor to Katie Couric for the evening news chair at the network. But her career hit a complete wall because she gave a speech at a university in Kansas a few weeks after the fall of the Saddam Hussein statue in Baghdad in the spring of 2003. And in her speech, Ashley Banfield basically said, you saw coverage, but you didn't see journalism. You saw the launching of the rockets by the U.S. government. You didn't see what happened after they landed. This is not real war, what you saw on television. I'm paraphrasing her message. And within hours, the management of NBC was issuing apologies and condemnations, wrapping her publicly on all of her knuckles and Her career with NBC was over. She was consigned to a broom closet. They wouldn't let her out of her contract. And the retribution was swift. And what NBC was accomplishing was not only punishing Ashley Banfield for speaking this forbidden truth, really, in her case, exposing the lie that television brings war into your living room and all the rest of that. It was not only punishment, it was an object lesson to other journalists. If you want to end up in a broom closet, if you want to wreck your career, then go ahead and raise questions about the quality of U.S. media coverage of wars. And in fact, the implicit judgment that these wars are in some way humane or appropriate, which is the baseline assumption that we're encouraged uh, to accept. This kind of thing goes on, I can't say all the time, because very few journalists, especially as they rise in the ranks, are willing to risk the end of their big money careers by um, venturing forth outside of those well-understood lines about what is permissible and what is not. You know, we're sometimes asked, why do journalists stay in line? You know, they're not going to be hauled off to to prison like in some other countries, what is it that forces them or compels them or makes them feel compelled in this direction to be so conformist? And a lot of the reason has to do with mortgages. A lot of the reasons have to do with, hey, I want to pay for uh, my children's uh, college education. I need financial security, on and on. I think it's a tremendous irony that we have many examples of very brave journalists for U.S. media outlets who go into war zones, uh, sometimes are wounded, 
Occasionally their colleagues lose their lives. And then they get back to the newsrooms back home and they're afraid of the boss. They don't want to lose their syndicated column, don't want to lose their front page access. And this is a disgusting and dangerous dynamic because it regiments the journalism that we get. And let's face it, if we live in the United States, we have, with very few exceptions, no firsthand experience with the wars that the United States has engaged in and continues to be engaged in. And so we're depending on news media. And that dependence is very dangerous because a precept of democracy is we need the informed consent of the governed. And what we're getting is the uninformed pseudo-consent. And that is a formula for the warfare state that we have. The president uh, would agree with you. In fact, he said uh, at the uh, White House Correspondents' uh, Dinner, he declared, uh, journalism is not a crime. The free press is a pillar, maybe the pillar of a free society. Great words from the White House. Yeah, President Biden, like his predecessors in the Oval Office, uh, really loves to speak about the glories of the free press and to say that uh, journalism is a wonderful aspect of our society until the journalists do something that the president and the government that he runs uh, that they really don't like. And a prime example now is Julian Assange. He is a journalist, he is a publisher, he is an editor, and he's sitting in prison in Great Britain, and he is being hot-wired to transportation into the United States. I have sat through a trial for two weeks in Northern Virginia, in the federal district there, of the CIA whistleblower, Jeffrey Sterling, and I can tell you, it was a kangaroo court. That is the court that Julian Assange has a ticket to if extradition continues. What is his so-called crime? It's journalism. WikiLeaks committed journalism. It exposed the war crimes of the United States through the cables that were released, through the now notorious video. Uh, it was called uh, collateral murder video, showing the, the wanton uh, murder of a number of people on the ground in Iraq from a U.S. military aircraft. And it is a compendium of evidence that the United States has systematically, systematically engaged in war crimes under the rubric of the so-called war on terror. So the stance of the U.S. government is this man is dangerous. He must be imprisoned. Support for Assange's widespread Amnesty International pen uh, the ACLU, uh, the Reporters Without Borders, and other groups have decried efforts to extradite Assange and called for dropping the charges against him. Uh, so, too, have editors and publishers of the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, and El Pais, who argue that the targeting of Assange for prosecution under the Espionage Act, quote, sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press, unquote. It's, it's interesting that those publications I just cited actually printed 
the WikiLeaks in their own uh, newspapers and magazines, but they were not targeted for persecution and prosecution as Assange has been. Why that discrepancy? Well, the discrepancy really is that first they came for WikiLeaks, and if they came for WikiLeaks, then there's the prerogative and the opportunity for government to work its way up the ladder. It's much tougher to go after the New York Times than to go after WikiLeaks. And in point of fact, the Nixon administration did go after the New York Times to enjoin continued publication of uh, the Pentagon Papers in 1971. I have to say that while it's good that media outlets and journalistic associations have been going to the public defense of Assange, it's been a little tardy. It's been a little weak need. It hasn't been really emphatic. I had some experiences with this uh, working as uh, part of the Institute for Public Accuracy and RootsAction.org, where we defended James Risen, the New York Times reporter, when the government under the Obama administration, the Justice Department under Eric Holder, tried for years under threat of jail to compel Risen to testify against an alleged leaker, Jeffrey Sterling, the CIA whistleblower. And the end result was that Risen faced down the government and the government backed down and didn't really compel him to testify or uh, throw him in jail. And I was involved in organizing uh, a defense petition through rootsaction.org. We held a news conference at the National Press Club, and we assembled a coalition of many of the groups that you mentioned, uh, the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists, Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, and others, Reporters Without Borders, which was one of the stronger groups, more emphatic groups. And so we held a big news conference. We had a petition that we gathered with more than 100,000 signers. That was for James Risen. Then at Roots Action, we thought, well, now that Risen's off the hook, what about the alleged whistleblower? Jeffrey Sterling, who's facing many felony counts because of his alleged uh, provision of CIA documents to James Risen. So we organized a defense of Jeffrey Sterling and many of the journalistic professional groups that had defended the journalist Risen disappeared from the effort. They had no interest in defending, supporting, speaking out for Jeffrey Sterling whatsoever. And I think that's illustrative of a lot of the ambivalence or indifference from outlets like the New York Times or Washington Post, when they're very glad to put on their front pages the results of the leaking of classified documents. But when it gets to the leakers being threatened with years or decades in prison, those media outlets are very weak about it. If you're lucky, if eventually uh, they run some editorials to support the whistleblowers as the whistleblowers are being railroaded into prison. That reminds me of a conversation I had with the great Pentagon Papers whistleblower, Daniel Ellsberg. He said his experience after leaking 
the Pentagon Papers after it was published first by the New York Times on the front page with huge documentation and quotations and so forth. The attitude that Ellsberg said was coming from the New York Times was that, in effect, Ellsberg was a necessary evil. He was like a snitch in terms of how a DA's office would look at someone providing information. And so Ellsberg said that he felt he was being viewed by the New York Times as kind of a snitch. Okay, you gave us the documents, but you're on your own, Buster. We got our stories, and then you go on out there. So it's as though you were looking at a relay race, and the whistleblower hands the baton to the media outlet, and the media outlet goes the last distance and crosses the finish line. And then after crossing the finish line, the media outlet looks back at who handed the outlet the baton and says, well, you know, isn't it nice what you did, but you're on your own now and you're going to have to deal with the consequences from anyone who doesn't like the race that you ran. This is really, I think, illustrative of the kind of limitations we have from the corporate media, from mainstream mass media in the United States. Willingness to challenge the U.S. government's fundamentals, the fact that we live in a military-industrial complex society, the fact that the militarization is so pervasive of the U.S. government budget, of society, of culture, of foreign policy, the attitude implicit and sometimes explicit from corporate media is, well, that's okay, because we, we get along with this system just fine. And of course, a lot of the corporate funding is overlapping between members of Congress who get contributions from Pentagon contractors, interlocking boards of directors from weapons suppliers, arms makers who are selling so much to the Pentagon and those who sit on the boards of U.S. media outlets. And so it's a very uh, comfortable relationship. And when anti-war forces and organizers try to disrupt that relationship, we're really not welcome to have a seat at the table to even be part of the discourse. You're listening to Norman Solomon, War Crimes and War Criminals. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us, 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Why is there no discussion of uh, U.S. war crimes and war criminals? Why aren't high officials held accountable? The attitude from corporate media in the United States, from Congress, from the White House, has traditionally been and continues to be that the U.S. can take the stance to the world, do as we say, not as we do. So the USA is good at pointing the fingers at Russia, at other countries that invade a different nation. But when the U.S. does it, it's a whole other thing as 
was said long ago by the great journalist I.F. Stone, all governments lie and nothing they say should be believed. That's not to say that governments always lie, but we should always have a high degree of skepticism when we're told certain narratives by governments and the stenographic journalists who love to present those pronouncements from government as fact. And if you read the op-ed pages and the editorial uh, sections of the New York Times and Washington Post and other uh, outlets of the so-called liberal media, the doublethink is well in place uh, that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. Well, I happen to think he is a war criminal. I also happen to think that George W. Bush is a war criminal. And we could go on to many other examples of high U.S. government officials where absolutely that description applies equally uh, as compared to the case of Vladimir Putin. Well, can you find a single major newspaper willing to editorialize, for instance, that George W. Bush, having, based on lies, ordered the invasion of Iraq, costing hundreds of thousands of lives, can you find any instance where a major U.S. media outlet refers to George W. Bush as a war criminal? It just ain't going to happen. You're not going to find it. And one of the aspects that I was happy to explore in the book uh, in a grim sort of way is the rehabilitation of this war criminal, George W. Bush, which is a paradigm for the presidents who followed, because if there's that sort of psychological impunity, if you will, towards that president who committed those war crimes, then it lets the subsequent presidents off the hook. Ellen DeGeneres made a big deal on her TV show about going to a ball game with George W. Bush, and she said, I don't agree with him uh, on some things, but uh, I'm his friend, and I'm very glad to be his friend. Then Michelle Obama, while her husband was in the White House, she also made a big show out of how she's friends with George W. Bush and uh, displayed their friendship publicly and said, well, uh, we disagree on some policies, but we, we share the same values. In a way, that's an unintended metaphor for the policies. Whether it's George W. Bush or Barack Obama, they too shared the same values. They differed on some policies, but maintained the prerogative, not just theoretically, but in action, to order the continuation of, or in Bush's case, initiation of an invasion and occupation that took vast numbers of lives. I quote President Obama speaking to troops in Afghanistan. And you could take one sentence after another of his speeches there and find almost identical sentences with Lyndon Johnson speaking in 1966 to the troops in Vietnam. They both talked about how the U.S. soldiers were compassionate, cared about human life, and were trying to help the suffering people of Vietnam or Afghanistan. And this is the pernicious theme that we also get quite often with almost any uh, U.S. war, that with the best of intentions, the U.S. is seeking to help those of other countries. And it's a way of making 
the victims at the other end of U.S. firepower invisible. There are two tiers of grief in U.S. mass media and in U.S. politics from Congress to the White House. Our grief and their grief. Our grief is Americans or those who are sort of designated as honorary semi-Americans, so to speak, as people in Ukraine, those who are killed by official enemy governments of the United States. That's the real tier of grief, we are implicitly told. And so when the U.S. media covered, as it should, has covered the suffering of people in Ukraine because of the war of aggression by Russia, those people in U.S. media are real. Their suffering is made as real as can be in the media. And yet, when it's the U.S. that has been slaughtering people in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and elsewhere, that's another tier of grief. The people who were at the other end of U.S. weapons, the civilians, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them directly killed into the millions indirectly killed by U.S. warfare, their tier of grief is not on the media map. It's implicit through the lack of coverage and the tone of coverage with rare exceptions that they as human beings just don't matter. Well, I think it's fair to say that the average American consumer of news knows scant little about what its country is doing internationally. How to rectify that? When I talked with Daniel Ellsberg, he made the point that it's perhaps uh, somewhat to the credit of the people of the United States that they're lied to so routinely about war because, in a sense, these are my words, people can plead ignorance, which is a pretty accurate plea for the most part. And we can attribute it to the news media and the government leaders that they serve so ably. So it raises the question, how much do people really know? How much do people really want to know? And I think, especially culturally, people in general perhaps don't really want to know information that's unpleasant. There are studies that say when people hear opinions they don't like, they're much more inclined to turn the channel on television. And I believe it's a mixture that people often don't want to hear what's unpleasant. But also, I don't think that should let the news media off the hook, because if we had media outlets with integrity, with a single standard of human rights, really practicing not just in theory, but in practice, journalism without fear or favor, we would really change the politics of this country. If hypothetically you or I, David, could edit the New York Times for a few weeks, there would be huge ripple effects in the society because information would flow not through fear or favor in reality, but journalism as practiced as journalism should be would mean people would hear what they didn't want to hear. And if so-called journalism is just telling people more or less what they do want to hear and reinforcing it, that's advertising. That's not journalism. One of the, uh, I would say, uh, benefits for countries that commit war crimes that are hooked up 
to the U.S. empire is that they are all given free passes when it comes to human rights violations, violations of the U.N. Charter and international law. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, Turkey, India, Israel, and there are many others who commit crimes but are given a free pass. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, when uh, President Biden went to Saudi Arabia and did a fist bump, uh, with the de facto ruler of that country, there was only a muted criticism. And yet, here we have a country, Saudi Arabia, a U.S. ally, that has been slaughtering people in Yemen for many years. And it's very notable that uh, at the end of 2017, at that point, almost three years of a war had gone on with the U.S.-led or the Saudi-led U.S.-supported bombing of Yemen, FAIR at the Media Watch Group did this in-depth study, and they looked at the coverage of that humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which was second to none in the world at that point, and found that MSNBC had done virtually no coverage. I'm, I'm quoting here, an analysis by FAIR has found that the leading liberal cable network did not run a single segment devoted specifically to Yemen in the last half of 2017. Moreover, in all of 2017, MSNBC only aired one broadcast on the U.S.-backed Saudi airstrikes that have killed thousands of Yemeni civilians, and it never mentioned the impoverished nation's colossal cholera epidemic, which inflicted more than one million Yemenis in the largest outbreak in recorded history, unquote. So here you have the we're told liberal network, MSNBC, virtually ignoring the slaughter of people backed by the United States, led by Saudi Arabia in Yemen, despite the fact, I think in many ways because of the fact, that the U.S. government was supporting that slaughter. So meanwhile, the U.S. is, quote, and I'm citing again the report from FAIR, selling many billions of dollars of weapons to Saudi Arabia, refueling Saudi warplanes as they relentlessly bomb civilian areas and providing intelligence and military assistance to the, to the Saudi Air Force, unquote. So what was MSNBC covering when they weren't covering Yemen? They were fixated on Russia. And in fact, as Fair pointed out, MSNBC ran almost 5,000% more segments that mentioned Russia than segments that mentioned Yemen. So you can't beat coverage of the official U.S. enemies. And this is a tried and true formula. And I have to say that a lot of the Cold War that now has pushed the world closer to nuclear apocalypse than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, a lot of that was fueled by MSNBC. It was a ratings winner, Rachel Maddow, for years and years and years, banged on the drum during the Trump presidency, claiming that the big threat to democracy in the United States was Russia, you know, pumping up Russia gates, something far, far out of proportion. And meanwhile, the genuine threats to democracy, the right-wing extremists who are now assaulting the U.S. government, including from inside the majority of the House of Representatives, uh, that whole uh, realm got short shrift. 
So the idea of scapegoating a foreign enemy for the terrible deficits and perversions of purported democracy in the United States, this is very attractive. And I would say that when Hillary Clinton lost the election in 2016, there was immediately a fundamental choice, which was resolved within 24 hours, well-documented. A day after Hillary Clinton lost the presidency in 2016, the decision was made by top campaign managers to blame Russia. Why would you blame her proximity to Wall Street? Why would you blame her willingness to align herself with major corporations at the expense of working people? Why would you blame her unpopular support and affinity for U.S. wars? That's not an attractive option to the power structure. The attractive option was to blame Russia. And that set a series of cascading events that transformed the Democratic Party more and more into a warlike propaganda party, which we're finding the results now of. So if you look at the present day of U.S. media coverage, you have tremendous support for unbridled weapon sales towards Ukraine without any call for genuine diplomacy or negotiations of any sort. So the militarism, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the madness of militarism, is alive and well and so dangerous in the United States, and we're not getting any access, meaningful access in the mass media to challenge it. That's why building alternative media from the grassroots, organizing among people who insist that democracy must come from the grassroots is so essential. And the synergy between political organizing for progressive change and progressive media outlets, that synergy is absolutely crucial. Why are Palestinian views on its conflict with Israel so underrepresented uh, in the media? Well, the, the combination of many factors has given the Israeli government a free pass. By any objective standards, I believe, Israel is an apartheid state, and we have many human rights organizations, including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the Israeli human rights organization, Beth Selim. They all have issued statements saying that Israel engages in apartheid. And yet the confluence of political power, of Israel support groups who are very strong on Capitol Hill, for so many reasons, it has been difficult to pull the mass media of the United States away from its obsequious support for Israel. It's really a tragedy. It has to change. It's very slowly changing. But after all, the occupation of uh, Palestinian territories began in 1967. This has been going on for such a long time. The crimes against Palestinian people by the Israeli government have been systematic. And it's very notable that in recent months, as there have been protests by Israelis against the attacks by the Netanyahu regime, against the court system, that many are protesting, many are in the streets of Israel, and those protests have gotten a lot of support in the U.S. media. However, those protests on the whole do not address the oppression of Palestinian people. Those protests are basically saying, with few exceptions, we don't want the Israeli government to take away 
our freedom as Israeli Jews. And I think those protests are so circumscribed that a lot of U.S. mass media have been very supportive of those critiques of the Netanyahu government. What we need, again, is a single standard of human rights that insists that we want those human rights to be applied as a grid that is meaningful in a 360 direction. We're not going to pick and choose and cherry pick where human rights matter and where they, where they don't. And the Israeli government gets a pass from the U.S. media. It's disgusting. It's outrageous. It should be opposed. The notion that criticizing Israel means anti-Semitism is absurd. I'd say that as an American Jew. I think it is just a time and place. This is so overdue to say, let's have a single standard of human rights. Let's have media coverage of Israel and its conduct that qualifies for journalism. So far, we really haven't gotten it. Both Medea Benjamin and Noam Chomsky say attitudes toward Israel in the U.S. are changing, particularly among younger people. They are more critical. Do you find that to be the case? There's no doubt that younger Americans, Jews and non-Jews alike, are much more critical of Israel. And that's a hopeful sign. There has been change uh, at the grassroots of the United States and change in the media. But arguably, it's been glacial. It's certainly been way too slow. And I think we have an opportunity now to accelerate that change. It really means that we need to strip away, like the layers of an onion, all the excuses that are given for turning uh, away from the realities of Israel's conduct, which, after all, is a U.S. client state in many respects, an unprecedented 10-year grant of about $35 billion hot-wired in, guaranteed by Congress several years ago. It's unprecedented, this kind of uh, paying the uh, the piper for uh, enforcing uh, apartheid has been given as essentially a, a blank uh, check, uh, more than $3 billion a year from the U.S. government to Israel. One indication of the positive change is the example of Peter Beinart, someone who was very strongly supportive of Israel, who wrote a book called The Crisis of Zionism many years ago, which was well, mildly critical, I would say, of Israel. And because he has opted to continue to scrutinize what Israel's actually done, he's become a very articulate, clear critic, not only of Israel, but of reflexive U.S. government support for Israel. And I think those kind of changes are happening, especially in the younger generation of the United States, the last couple of generations that have come to the fore. So there are reasons for hope, but also, I'm afraid, even more reasons for outrage and determination to change the status quo of U.S. support for Israel. What is to be done? What practical steps would you recommend? I believe in organizing as the key element to turn around these dire circumstances that we face. Corporate power, class war waged from the top down, militarization of our society and foreign policy. That means a shift in mindset to see that we're not consuming history off the shelf like some Wonder Bread, that we're going to 
created, but that won't be done for us. In any realm that we care about, as the saying goes, uh, whatever your first major concern is, your second should be media. We need to build media organizations and support the ones that are doing progressive work, support them financially, support them in terms of spreading the word, and also learning more about how to and actually implementing how to organize with people we know and don't know. And I think that's pretty antithetical to the media training because really when you think about it, the main messages from, say, television involve go out and buy things and maybe vote once in a while. Well, we do need to go out and buy things. We certainly should vote, but the real changes are going to come when we find ways to work together for political power. And I believe that's inside and outside the electoral arena. When you look at the corruption of the Federal Communications Commission, for instance, that's not going to change until different people are in office. And we're not going to get different people in office until we elect them and we make sure we can overcome the big power of money. But there's also the real history that needs to be reignited more and more of social movements, where everything we have to be proud of in this country was a result of people organizing from the bottom up, generating the power of social movements. That's really where our best future is. You conclude War Made Invisible with a quote from James Baldwin. I'm going to ask you to read it. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Thanks very much for your time. Oh, thank you, David. And I'm just, uh, for decades now, a big admirer of alternative radio. And uh, thank goodness for what you're doing. Thanks, Norman. You were just listening to Norman Solomon, War Crimes and War Criminals. I talked with him on May 10th. Norman Solomon, a distinguished political commentator and media critic, is the author of many books. His latest is War Made Invisible. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Medea Benjamin, and Arundhati Roy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Norman Solomon, War Crimes and War Criminals, and for his book, War Made Invisible, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Harry Belafonte, Island in the Sun. This is my island in the sun. Here I go.
Shining sun. 